Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. About 10, 12 years ago, a pastor became very popular when he took over a flagship Presbyterian church in Florida, and he instantly catapulted into fame. Uh, He wrote many books, he wrote blogs for the Gospel Coalition, and he had a, a fairly good message. His message was halfway good. His message was that God loves you, God accepts you, Jesus has died for you, you are secure in the grip of Jesus. Good, right? But what he would go on to say is, you know you're going to fail, you know you're going to sin, so just embrace your failure and continue to sin. Because we don't want to be legalistic, we don't want to burden people with guilt So we just need to realize that God loves us so we can pretty much live however we want because after all, we're saved. Now many pastors and bloggers and famous people had problems with this message. And so they asked him to stop writing for the Gospel Coalition. People like Tim Keller and D.A. Carson and John Piper met with him privately and said, "Your, your message is confusing. Well, sadly, it came out from 2014 to 2016, he was having an affair with a woman while he was pastoring. And it came to light, and he had to resign from his church. And it was a big scandal, big, huge church in Florida. Well, later on, another church hired him on very shortly afterwards as an associate pastor. And it came to light that even before he had the first affair, he had another affair previously. And a bunch of women came forward and said he pretty much had a history of having affairs. And he remarried, and a controversy erupted again back in November of 2016 when she posted on Facebook his sermon that he preached in California. Uh, To this day, he's lost his ministry. He still has a blog. He still has his books. Uh, But here's the issue with this gentleman. His personal theology reflected in his lifestyle it caught up with him i know i'm forgiven i know i'm saved i know i've got my free ticket to heaven i i know that i'm i'm once saved always saved i'm eternally secure so therefore because that's true and i know i'm gonna fail i know i'm gonna have struggles i might as well just embrace failure and he ended up having major failure with multiple affairs in his life Now, here's the thing about that message. Half of it is true. God does love you. You are accepted. You have been saved by grace. You are eternally secure. You can bank on God's forgiveness. That's wonderful news. But the other half of it's confusing. 
Does that mean we can just live however we want? Because after all, we're going to heaven? Last week, we began to look at Galatians chapter 2, the ending of this passage. And we were struck with the most important question that anybody can ask. And the question we asked last week is, how can you, as a guilty sinner, have a right relationship with the Holy God? And we found out that the answer is not by your works, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so when you trust Jesus Christ, something wonderful happens to you. All of your sin, past, present, and future, gets credited to Jesus. And all of his perfect record of righteousness gets credited to you. And therefore, God can make that legal verdict. He can look down upon your life, and God can say forever, once and for all, you are not guilty. You're accepted. You are a child of God once and for all. And that gives us assurance. That gives us comfort. That gives us joy that takes away a lot of guilt and fear that we have in our lives to know that God can declare us not guilty once and for all. And that's the heart of the gospel. The message of the gospels were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We have this new position. We're accepted. We're loved. We're forgiven. We're secure in Christ. Yet, there's something we need to fully understand in light of this teaching. John Calvin has famously said, It is faith alone that justifies, but the faith that justifies is not alone. Now, what do I mean by that? Probably the best text that illustrates this is Ephesians 2, 8-10. through You're very familiar with this passage of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 8-10. through For by grace... You've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, stop it right there. Saved by grace. Grace alone. You can't boast. It's not by works. God saves us by grace. But verse 10 tells us this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace alone. We don't add works to be able to be saved. We don't somehow earn our salvation by what we do in our good deeds. We are saved by grace. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved in order to walk in those good works. And so... Paul is going to address the outflow, the objection that somebody's going to have to this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because somebody's going to come along and say, now wait a minute, Paul. If it is so awesomely true that you're saved by grace and you're accepted by Jesus and he's forgiven you of all your sins, isn't that going to lead somebody to live however they want? Because after all, they can just ask God to forgive them. And Paul's going to address that and say, no, if you've been justified by faith, you will live for Christ. They go hand in hand. You're saved by grace, and you walk in obedience by that grace. So let's pick up where we left off last week. We're going to read the passage again, and we're going to focus in on how Paul tells us to live the Christian life once we've been saved. 
So let's start back up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, this is where we spent all last week, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times he says it there in that verse. Three times. You're not justified by works of the law. You're justified by faith in Christ. Okay, verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, here's the main point of this passage. Here's the big idea. What Paul's trying to get to to drive home to us. You've died to sin so that by faith you may live for Christ. You've died to sin. You've died to your old way. You've died to the law. Now you have been raised to new life to to live for Jesus, to live for Christ, to live for God. Now, this has historically been called union with Christ. Last week, we looked at justification by faith alone. That's how we get into a relationship with Christ, by faith. But once you're into that relationship, you're you're united with Christ, and that will affect how you live your life. So they go hand in hand. So what I want us to do this morning is to explore five truths that this passage teaches about our union with Christ. If you've been united with Christ in faith, If your old life has died and you're a new creation in Christ, what does that look like? How do you live? How does that express itself in your life? That's what Paul addresses here in this passage in Galatians. So let's look at the first truth. Truth number one, justification by faith is not an excuse to continue in sin by ignoring God's commands. Now, Paul is going to expect an objection here from his Jewish readers, his Jewish audience. What Paul has just said to these Jewish leaders is offensive to them. Paul has basically told them, you are not in a right relationship with God by what you do by obedience to the law. It's not by circumcision. It's not by baptism. It's not by kosher dietary laws. There's no work you can do to add to your salvation. It's by grace alone. And see, they prided themselves on following God's law. And they thought to themselves, if I just obeyed God's law, that puts me into God's good graces. Because after all, I'm a a Jewish person. 
I'm one of God's chosen people. And a good Jewish person obeys the law in order for God to love them. And what does Paul say? No, you don't obey the law in order for God to love you. It's through faith. And to a Jewish person, they're hearing from Paul, well, you're just throwing out the law, Paul. You're, you're throwing out what we have to do. You're, you're throwing out the whole obedience. And if you throw that out, if you throw out obedience, if you throw out the law, that's going to cause a major problem because people are just going to be beginning to live however they want to live. You're going to throw aside all moral constraints, Paul. You're basically saying we're going to be like the Gentiles. We're going to be lawless. So, so you can't throw away the law. If you throw away the law, Paul, it's going to go crazy. People are going to go crazy. They're going to live however they want to. And Paul addresses that objection. I want to teach you a word. It's a big word, but sometimes it's good to learn big words. It's called antinomianism. Anti means against. Nomos is the Greek word for law. Antinomianism. I don't expect you to remember this word, but it's, it's alive and well. It's been alive and well in the church ever since the very beginning. What this says is, is because I'm saved by grace and because I'm forgiven and because God loves to forgive, because that's true, there's now no more need for me to live for Jesus. I can live however I want. Because after all, at the end of the day, I can just ask God to forgive me and he'll forgive me. No pursuit of holiness. No desire to follow Christ in obedience. It's basically called cheap grace. And Paul here says, if that's what's true, if that's what I'm saying, look at verse um, 17. Is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. This is not an excuse. What, what I'm teaching is not an excuse for people just to continue to live in sin. There, there's a definite change that happens when you've trusted Christ for salvation. It's not just license for you to go live however you want. Because what these Jewish people are thinking is, there's no such thing as a free lunch, Paul. That is too good to be true. You're telling me, Paul, that all a person has to do is simply trust in Jesus Christ alone? It's not works, it's, it's trusting? And Paul says, yes. It's simply trusting in Christ alone. And the Jewish audience says, now wait a minute, Paul, if, if that's the game you're going to play, that's going to lead people to live however they want because they're not going to care about obeying the law. And Paul blows that out of the water and says, listen, I understand I understand your fear. I understand that if you, you get rid of the law, people are going to live with no boundaries. They're going to live in, in flagrant sin. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, there are two ways you can come to God. You can come to God by works of the law that's only going to leave you in sin. It's only going to leave you in bondage. It's only going to keep you trapped in this ongoing treadmill of trying to earn God's approval. That is death. The other way to come to faith in Christ, the other way to have a right relationship is by faith alone, not by works of the law. And they're misunderstanding him because they're thinking, that's too good to be true, Paul. If it's simply faith, then that means people are going to live however they want with no regard for the rules, no regard for God's standards. And Paul says, by no means, by no means. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, if I, if I rebuild... If I go back and try to, try to rebuild what I tore down, the law, I'm just going to be putting myself right back into sin. 
Now, Paul addresses this issue in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. It's the same exact argument, the same exact ob- objection that people are going to have. When, they hear, when, you hear the, when you hear the truth of grace, sometimes it is too good to be true. Now, you're telling me that all my sins can be forgiven by simply trusting in Jesus? Yes. Well, that means that, that, means that people are going to live however they want because it's, it's grace. And Paul says, listen, let me, let me give you an answer to that. Romans chapter 6, 1 through 3. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, am I supposed to keep on sinning because God's going to keep on forgiving? So some people have this attitude. I really love to sin. It's fun. And God really loves to forgive. So let's keep this relationship up as long as we can. I'm going to keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving. And Paul says, by no means. Verse 2. By no means. Can't be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul says you can't do that. The gospel will not allow that. Yes, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but that is not a license. That is not permission. That's not an excuse for you to continue to live however you want just so you can bank on God's forgiveness at the end of the day. In other words, if you are truly justified by faith alone, it will prove itself out in a life of holiness towards Christ. The two go hand in hand. You're not saved by your good works, but you're saved for good works. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16 says. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. That's a a tall order, right? Love God, obey His commandments, walk in His ways. If you do all those things, in the Old Testament, He says you'll live. Now, here's here's the issue. Before you're a Christian, you don't want to do those things. You could care less about loving Jesus. You could care less about obeying Jesus. You could care less about following in His ways. You You don't want to do it. But something fundamentally happens to you when you become a Christian. God puts the want to into your heart. He gives you the desire. So you now have new desires. If you're a Christian, you should have new desires in your heart to where you want to love God, obey God, follow God. Not so that you can be saved, Paul blew that out of the water last week. You don't do these things in order to be saved. You do these things as a result of being saved. So you still obey. You still walk in holiness. You still follow Christ. But you do that after you're saved because the fundamental change has happened in you that's given you the ability to do that through the power of the gospel. Martin Luther says that we bear fruit. And good works. Good works are not the cause of our salvation. They're the fruit 
of our salvation. The tree makes the apple, not the apple the tree. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the first thing Paul wants us to know is, listen, if you are truly saved by grace, that's not an excuse for you just to keep on sinning. There has to be a fundamental change in your life that bears itself out in good works. Not to save you, but as a result of your salvation. So here's the question. There may be some of you here today that have fallen into this trap. You may think to yourself, and you play these little mind games, and I know the mind games because I sometimes play them myself. I know Jesus died on the cross for me. I know I have trusted him. I know his blood covers me. I know I'm going to heaven. I know God loves to forgive. That's true. So what I'm going to do then is I'm going to live however I want because after all, God's obligated to forgive me. Some of you may be falling into that trap. Got my free ticket to heaven. I know I'm eternally secure. I know God's got my back. So I could care less about living for Christ because after all, if I mess up, he's going to come in the clutch and he's going to clean me up after the fact. It's never an excuse. Grace is never an excuse for you to continue into sin. Paul says, by no means. It's the strongest way in the Greek language to say it. By no means. Now, it's partially true. God does forgive you. God does love you. God does accept you. God does clean you up. That's true. But that is never an excuse for you to continue in a life of sin. Instead, we should be pursuing holiness. Now, how do we do that? How does that happen? Well, Paul is going to begin to unpack what that looks like. So let's look at truth number two. He had to get that out of the way because there's people that are going to object to to this whole idea of grace. It's too good to be true. People are going to live however they want. Paul says, no, by no means, that can't happen. Why can't that happen? Here's truth number two. You died to the law so that you can live for God. Notice what Paul says in verse 19. For For through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. Before Paul's salvation, he was trying to earn acceptance with God through obedience to the law. Remember, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was um, zealous. I mean, if you were to look at Paul's resume, he was the top dog as far as being religious. And Paul was being religious, but who was he living for? He was living for himself. He thought he was living for God, but he was living for himself. Notice what Paul says here. I died to the law so that I might live for who? I might live for for God, not myself. Remember what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus when, when the risen Christ blinded Paul? said something very interesting to Paul, interesting metaphor. Acts 26, 14. When he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, that was Paul's name before Christ changed it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? 
That's not an expression we use a lot. What does it mean to kick against the goads? Okay, what's a goad? A goad was a sharp pointed stick that farmers would use to hit their animals to make them go. What's Jesus saying to Paul? You're like a stubborn mule. You're like an old stubborn mule that doesn't want to follow me. You're going your own way. And so God had to get a two-by-four, a goad, to hit Paul upside the head so that Paul could realize that no matter how religious he was being, he was kicking against the goad. He was trying hard, he was trying hard, he was trying hard, and it got him nowhere. It got him nowhere. It was pointless. And so what Paul says is this. When you've trusted Christ for salvation, there becomes a definitive. There becomes a powerful separation, a powerful death to the law. And you are now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, able to live for God. Paul's old life of sin was dead. Which means that if you're a Christian here this morning, your old life is dead dead sin no longer has dominion over you sin no longer has control over you you can now choose to not sin before you couldn't choose not to sin paul says this in romans 6 4 we were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, okay. picture a death. We were buried with Christ. Our old life was dead. Our old life died. When you became a Christian, that old self of yours was put to death, and you became a new person. And Paul here says you walk in newness of life. Your life is new. And you are to walk in a way that's new, that's for Christ, that's for God. In Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Same, same terminology. You've died to the law, to the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You see, you've died You've been raised so that you can walk in newness of life and you can bear fruit for God and now you can live for God. You see, here's the point. Before in your old self, who were you living for? You were living for yourself. My desires, my goals, my agenda, I'm living for myself. And Paul says that, that self has died. As a Christian now, you are to be living for Christ, not for yourself. You are to be living for Christ. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you're a Christian here this morning, the issue is not whether you've died and been raised to new life. That's happened. The question is, are you living in the reality of that? Are you living a life that's pleasing to God? Are you walking? Is your lifestyle a new lifestyle? Are you bearing fruit for God? Here, here's the fundamental question. Are you living for yourself or are you living for God? That's the bottom line. Are you living for yourself or are you living for God? 
Paul says, my old life has died to the law so that I may now live for God. My desire is to live for God, to live for Christ, to walk in newness of life. And Paul, so, so thirdly, Paul makes it even more graphic. Paul uses this interesting language here. So here's truth number three. You have been crucified with Christ. Now, now what in the world does this mean? Who died on the cross? Not a trick question. Who died on the cross? Jesus. And why would Paul say, you've been crucified with Christ? Were you there 2,000 years ago when Jesus died? That word crucified is in what we call the perfect tense, which means that at a point in time when you became a Christian, you were crucified with Christ and you continue to be crucified with Christ. In other words, your entire life is a crucified life. You live the crucified life. Now, now what does it mean? What does it mean? Paul says in Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, I can't fully explain this. And theologians can't fully explain this. So let me do my best to to try to help us understand what this means. Somehow spiritually, Over 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross, you were there with him in that death. And when he was buried and when he was raised again, you experienced that burial and you experienced that resurrection. I can't explain how that all fits in my mind. But you can look at it this way. Over 2,000 years ago, your salvation was accomplished. Jesus died once and for all on the cross, mission accomplished. What did he cry out? It is finished. And yet, the moment you place your faith in Christ, all the benefits of what Jesus did in his death, burial, and resurrection become yours. And you're united to Christ. And it's as if you were there on the cross when he died, you were buried when he was buried, you were raised when he was raised. And so the moment you trust in him, all of that work that Christ did is now applied to you. And you are crucified with Christ. You receive the benefit of that. Do you praise Jesus for being crucified with him? Do you praise Jesus that when he went to the cross and cried out, it is finished and was buried and was raised again, he had you in mind. You were there with him. He did this for you. Now, you may not feel that at times, but we need to live in the joy of the fact that we have been crucified with Christ, which means that, again, our old life is dead. We have a brand new life. A crucified life, which means that we we die to ourself, we die to our desires, and we live for Christ. We live for God. It's that continual state of living the crucified life. Dying to self, living for Christ. Okay, let's look at truth number four, because Paul begins to unpack it even more. Truth number four. Your old self no longer lives, but Christ now lives in you. Now, Now look at what he says there. Famous passage in Galatians, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer 
I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, now what does Paul mean? It's no longer I who live. Anybody here not living? If you are, we need to call a doctor. What does Paul mean? What does Paul mean when he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? What Paul is saying is that his old self, that old man, the former you that was dead in sin, the former you that was in bondage to sin, the former you that was enslaved to the law, that you has died. There's a new you. The crucified, risen you, the regenerated you, the born-again you, the new you, the new creation you. And the new you, you don't live in the flesh, i.e. you don't live in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the sinful nature. You live life in the body. You live life in your body, but you live by the power of Christ living in you. Christ lives in you. Now, what does it mean that Christ lives in you? We know that Jesus is risen from the dead. Where's Jesus right now? Theological question, where's Jesus right now? He's in heaven, right? Does Jesus have a body in heaven? Yes. Is Jesus at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Is Jesus going to come back one day with a body? Yeah. So how can Jesus live in your heart if he's in heaven? How does he do that? Well, we don't have to guess. Jesus promised over and over again, especially back when we were going through the Gospel of John, who did Jesus promise to live in us? He sent the Holy Spirit. So Christ lives in us through the Holy Spirit that he's given us. Remember his words to the disciples in John 14, 16 through 18? I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, it's the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be where? In you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit will live in us. So when this old life died and we received this new life, the old has gone away. Behold, the new has come. Christ has implanted into us his very Holy Spirit to empower us, to give us strength, to give us grace. So the life that we live is not us living it. Yeah, we're living it, and we're living it in a body, but it's empowered. It's motivated. It's graced by the Holy Spirit living in us. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son where? Into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. <clears throat> John Calvin gives this great image. He says, engrafted into the death of Christ, we now derive a supernatural energy from it as the shoot does from the root. What's the root analogy that Jesus has talked about? You remember John 15, 5? I am the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We are in this dynamic relationship with Christ whereby all of the energy, all of the power, all of the grace that we need to live for God comes from the Holy Spirit in us, giving us that power, giving us that grace 
giving us that strength. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 4.13, I can do what? All things through him who gives me strength. Are you living for yourself? Are you living for Christ? Are you relying upon yourself or are you relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you being self-reliant or are you being Holy Spirit-reliant? Okay, here's truth number five. You live by faith because Christ died in your place. Verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Okay, my old self is no longer living. I have a new self. Christ lives in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, when Paul says here, the life I now live in the flesh, his wording of the flesh there is not a bad thing. That's not the bad use of the word flesh. He's just basically saying, the life I now live in the body, my, my physical existence, the life that I live every day when I present my, my body as a living sacrifice, that life is a life of faith. Which means that when you trusted Christ for salvation, it was not just a one-time superficial, I asked Jesus into my heart, I came forward, I got baptized, and no change. Got a lot of Christians, so-called Christians, that have done that, and there's no change. Paul says, the life that I continually live, I live by faith. My whole lifestyle is one of faith in Christ. If you're truly saved, if you've truly died to your old self, you will be living for Christ. You will be bearing fruit. It will be ongoing. And Paul says this life of faith is motivated by two things. Two things that you don't produce. Two things that you don't conjure up. Two things that you could never in a million years work for yourself. What does Paul say are these two things that motivate us to live for Christ? Well, it's right there in the text. Look at it. Look at the very end. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who did what? Two things. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, it's interesting. They're both in the past tense. Christ who loved me. Now, why does he use it in the past tense? Would Paul be wrong to say Christ loves me? Yes. But when Paul says Christ loved me, what does that point to? It points to that point in time where God fully expressed his love for us by sending Jesus to die in our place on the cross as the greatest expression of love. Romans 5.8 God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Demonstrated that love. Expressed that love for us. 1 John 4.10 And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, so why can you live for Jesus? Because he loved you. And he continues to love you. And you could never begin to love him first. He loved you first. He changed you. He took you out of that pit. He took you out of that sin. He took you out of that deadness and raised you to new life, put the Holy Spirit in you, and has loved you by the cross. That's motivation for you now to live by faith for him. And number two, he gave himself for you. Same thing. He loved you. He gave himself for you. This is just code language for the cross. He gave himself for you. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up 
gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Later on in Galatians 3.13, we'll get to this in a few weeks. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. He became a curse for us. He gave himself up for us. And then Ephesians 5.2 puts these two words together. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That little preposition for, huper, in the Greek, it means as a substitute for, in the place of, in your place. So the motivation, the joy, for you to live for Christ is not because somehow you earned it, somehow you deserve it, or somehow you can conjure up enough obedience to make God love you. You do it because you're a new creation in Christ, and Christ loved you and gave the Holy Spirit in you, and your old self is dead, and you've now been raised with Christ, and you live that crucified life in the power of the Holy Spirit to worship and live for God. You are a totally new person. Now, Paul brings what we've been discussing, these truths, the past two weeks to a head, and he he basically nails the the head of the coffin on trying to earn salvation through good works in verse 21. Summary statement, verse 21, Paul says, listen, everything I've been been boiling this down to, I'm going to say it in one statement in verse 21. And here's what Paul says. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could be saved by adding works to it, you've made a mockery out of the death of Christ. You've nullified his grace. I don't know what your translation says there. The ESV says, I do not nullify. That word nullify means to reject, to ignore, to see God's grace as useless. You basically, you basically turn around to Jesus and say, I know you finished the work on the cross, but let me, let me add my works to make sure it's truly complete. It's a slap in the face to Jesus to tell Jesus that he didn't do enough. It's the height of arrogance and the height of blasphemy to look to Jesus and say, you've done all, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you died on the cross, I'm glad you loved me, I'm glad you gave yourself for me, I'm glad you cried out, it's finished, Jesus. Jesus paid it all, now I'm going to pay the rest. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Basically, what Paul's saying is if you think you can even begin to get saved by adding works, you're slapping Jesus in the face, and you're nullifying everything he's done. And he basically died for no purpose. Tim Keller gives this illustration. He says, imagine that your house is burning down, and your whole family has escaped. So there's nobody left in the house Everybody's escaped, and I come up to you and say, I want to show you how much I love you. I want to go into your house, and, and I, want to, I, want to, I want to just heroically go into your house and, and save, save people. And you go in the house, and you die. Now, everybody was already saved because they were already out of the house. What would you think about that? You'd be like, he's kind of weird. That's kind of strange. It was heroic, but he kind of died for nothing. Everybody was already out. I mean, it was heroic, but it was stupid. Why go into a burning house to save people that are already out? Now, let's, let's make the analogy a little bit different. Let's say the house is burning down, and your baby, your newborn baby's in there screaming and crying. 
and is going to burn in the flames. And I say to you, I'm going to go in and save your baby. And I go into the house and I save your baby and I bring the baby out to safety. And in the process, I die in the flames. Your attitude is going to be a lot different, isn't it? Same situation, the house is burning down. What's the difference? In the first one, everybody's already saved. In the second one, your precious little baby needs to be saved. Here's the point. If we're already good, we can already save ourselves. Somehow we can do enough to make ourselves good in God's good graces. If somehow we can make ourselves acceptable, then Christ didn't need to die. It's pointless. It's like going into a burning house trying to take out people that have already been out. It's worthless. But yet if you realize that you were that baby burning in the fire and Christ came and saved you and he died, your attitude towards that death is going to be a whole lot different. Your attitude towards the cross is going to be totally different. And here's what you're going to do. When you see the beauty and the magnitude and the joy of what Christ did for you, when it sinks down into your heart, he loved me. He gave himself for me. Just stop and think about that. Did Jesus have to love you and me? No. Did he have to give himself for you and me? No. But he did. And when that sinks down into your heart that he loved me and he gave himself for me and my old life is dead and my new life has been raised and, and, and I've been crucified with Christ and I've been raised to new life and he's given me the Holy Spirit. When all these blessings come to you, what do you do? You live the rest of your life in thankfulness. You live the rest of your life wanting more of this Jesus. You live the rest of your life praising God for his amazing grace. Because you died to sin, you can now live for Christ. So here's the encouragement. I want us all to leave this place this morning with the encouragement and the joy to know that if you're a Christian, your old life has died. Praise the Lord. Anybody here just want to stand up and say hallelujah, praise the Lord, my old life has died? If you, if you don't, then something's wrong. My old life is dead. It has been buried in the tomb. It has been done away with. I've been crucified with Christ. I am a new creation in Christ. I have the Holy Spirit living in me. Christ loved me. He gave himself for me. And the life I now live, I live for Christ. And so we walk out of this place with joy. We walk out of this place with, with, with encouragement to know that we were once on dead row. We were once dead in our sins, and Christ saved us. And the moment he did that, every single one of our sins was taken to him, and every single one of his righteous acts, his perfect life, was given to us. And forever we stand accepted before the Lord. That is never an encouragement to live however you want, but that is 100% motivation for you to live a life of holiness for Christ because of what he did in your life. May this never be an excuse for flagrant sin but an excuse for joy and holiness and obedience. You have died to, to sin so that you can now live for Christ. Are you living for Christ?
I can't answer that question for you. Have you died to sin? I can't answer that question for you. Only God can. But my prayer is that every person can walk out of this room with joy knowing my old life is dead. I have new life in Christ. Praise the Lord. Let's live for Jesus. That's, that's the joy. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And only knew, you know your heart. I, ca I can't look into your heart. I can't even begin to do that. But spend this time letting the Lord search your heart to find out where you are this morning. He will be very clear to you. And the only appropriate response is to cry out to Him and ask Him to save you, to forgive you, and to change you from the inside out. So would you spend some time in prayer this morning? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Lord, we come before you this morning with thanksgiving, with joy, with gratitude. That never in a million years could we do this. We could never clean ourselves up enough. We could never do enough good works. We could never do anything to put ourselves in your debt that somehow you were obligated to save us by what we did. We can't boast. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. All we could do was fall on our knees that we have a Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross. Thank you that we were buried with you in baptism and we were raised to walk in newness of life. Our old self is dead. We're now a new creation. And because you've given us the Holy Spirit to live in us, we can live that crucified life. We can live for you, Jesus, and not for ourselves. So, Lord, my prayer is twofold this morning. Number one, if there is anybody in this room this morning that's never experienced that death, to their old self and been raised to new life would today be the day of their salvation where they can fall on their face and cry out to Jesus and receive that forgiveness, receive that grace, receive that cleansing that only comes from Jesus. And Lord, the other request is that as we leave this place, we would live in the fullness of what it means to live the crucified life, that we would realize we are dead to sin and we're alive to God. And we would obey you, we would pursue you, we would follow you, we'd live for you, Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, because you loved us and gave yourself up for us. Thank you for grace upon grace. Thank you for the grace that saves us initially, and thank you for the grace that sustains us ongoingly in the Christian life. From first to last, it's always grace upon grace. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.